with that developed imagination, there is no place you can't go. Sandra Meisner. Hi, my name is Diego Casasnova, and this is Let's Talk Acting. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode four of our 14-episode podcast. I want to say thank you again. I know I say this every episode, but I am truly grateful for each and every one of you guys who um, have taken their time to come listen myself rant about acting every week. I know I've said this a bunch of times, but I do love acting, and I think it's something that people need to talk about it more. Um, you don't get just a good acting experience. You get life experiences in the theater, in the film, in the studio, in rehearsals. So, yes. Uh, like I said on my last episode, this week we're going to talk about Meisner. Yes, Meisner. Um I remember when I took Meisner, uh, I had a love-hate relationship with this young man. Um, it challenged me as an actor, as a human, and it truly transformed my acting. So here, to help me break down this Meisner technique, I have my old Meisner professor, Nancy McNulty. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Hi, Diego. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it so much. So, Nancy, um, tell our listeners, who are you? Who am I? Yes. I'm, uh, I am uh, Nancy. I am a woman who grew up in Boston, uh, just south of South Boston. Uh, I knew I wanted to be an actor at a very young age. Um, I think that more than, you know, me finding acting, acting found me, you know, at many points in my life, I thought if, if I could put this fire out in my belly, I would, <laughs> um, because there are a lot better ways to make a living. Uh, so it is, it is deep within me. Um, and it is uh, a, a big passion of mine, and so it was teaching. And it was uh, a very great opportunity for me to be able to teach some Meisner uh, at Point Park, which is where I met you. I moved here uh, to Pittsburgh from New York City uh, five years ago with my husband, who was also an actor, Tim McGeever. Um, we were there about 20 years. Uh, I went to graduate school in New York at the Actors Studio Drama School. Um, after that, I became um, a lifetime member of the Actors Studio, where, uh, which is an amazing uh, place. Uh, I describe it as like an actor's gym. Um, you go there to really work out your craft and to hear from your peers and uh, from moderators. Um, and I did that twice a week for a lot of years. Yeah. And then I decided, uh, my husband and I both decided um, that we needed a, a change of lifestyle um, and some place where we could put down some roots, get some assets, make a life for ourselves. So we came to Pittsburgh. You came to Pittsburgh, and this is where our path crossed at Point Park. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
uh, Nancy, uh, you talked, uh, you told us our train, uh, your trainee. You told us, uh, uh, you know, why acting. You sh you told us that acting shows you and everything. Now, talk to us about credits. I know you got a lot of credits in there. Uh, where <laughs> do people? Where can people find you? Where can people look for your or or? How can people associate you and the type of work you do? Oh, that's those are two very different questions. Uh, you know, if you if you would like to see my face on film, um, you can check me out in Where'd You Go, Bernadette, uh, which uh, came out recently with Kate Blanchett and Kristen Wiig. Um, now, in terms of being able to see what I do. Uh, much of that ended up on the editing room floor. <laughs> I spent an amazing day uh, on that set uh, improvising with Kristen Wiig and Richard Linklater, the director. Um, and it all boiled down to, you know, one quick, uh, very nice close-up <laughs> um, and a line or two. Um, but it was an absolutely amazing experience that I wouldn't uh, ever change. Uh, you can see more of me um, on ABC All Access. If you if you have the online platform of mm -hmm. ABC, I'm on two shows there. So no, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. They'll kill me. It's not ABC, it's CBS. CBS All Access. CBS All Access. <laughs> yeah, um, a show called uh, One Dollar. Uh, which is a very cool show um, set in Pittsburgh, sort of a murder mystery surrounding the life of a dollar bill. Uh, I'm in a couple of episodes of that. Um, and a story I'm sure we'll talk about later was me shooting an episode of Manhunter. Uh, Mindhunter. Manhunt. Uh, the second season of Manhunt. Yeah, I always uh, get them confused too. Mindhunter and Manhunt. I always say. Yeah, exactly. I, have to I say also it all did. Out loud. I also did Manhunt, and uh, I always say Mindhunter, and then people go, "Oh, Mindhunter." I was like, "No, not Mindhunter. Manhunt." Exactly. I, I get them mixed up all the time too. Mm -hmm. So, but yes, we'll talk about Manhunt a little later when we get into Meissner uh, technique. Uh, I want to go to some rapid fire questions, if that's okay with you, Nancy. Uh, sure. I've done this with uh, Cutter and with Sharon Brady, and people actually seem to enjoy it. It's a quick and quick and easy way to get to know you a little bit better, besides, you know, okay. your love for acting. So, yes. Yeah, so I've crafted I crafted some questions. Uh, some theater related some non-theater related most of the questions are the same but i always add a couple questions you know just so we can change things a little bit uh nancy what's your go-to breakfast huh uh butter and peanut butter on toast mm. toasted do you like Toasty. it like mid toast burned like uh i like a well done toast well done toast yeah, yeah. i'm a mid myself yeah. Uh, what's your favorite color, Nancy? Yellow. Uh, what's your favorite season? Fall. Fall. I love fall. Too. I've had it so so rarely in my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Uh, what's your favorite curse word? Fuck. Mm. It goes with everything, doesn't it? it just, does it, it does? It just, Coffee or tea? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It it just it 
you feel good after you say a good fuck. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what's a play that you love, that you really love? A play that I really love. Well, it's funny. I don't know about, I don't know if, if I love the play, but there was a, are you, are you going to ask me about a perform like the best performance I ever saw or anything like that? Um, I, I'll save I will. One. Yes. But you can answer both of them in one if you want. Um, in New York, I saw Dana Ivy in a production of the glass menagerie. And it was the best acting I had ever seen. And every breath she took brought me to tears. And I went with my husband because our, our our friend Patch Dara was also in that show. Um, and at one point he turned to me and he said, Nancy, you're shaking your robe. Because I was <laughs> I was crying so much. And so I try I really tried to get myself under control, just watching Dana Ivy be incredible. Um, and I did get myself under control. And then finally he said, Nancy, you're still shaking the row. And I said, It's not me, it is the rest of the row. <laughs> It was such an incredible performance. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know if The Glass Menagerie is, you know, anywhere near my favorite play, but it stands out because of that performance. Uh, what's a play that, okay, you didn't answer a play you love, so I'm guessing you're not going to answer this one as well. We might as well ask <laughs> it. What's a play that you're not quite fond of? If someone says, hey, I have a ticket for this play, you're like, oh, I yeah. don't want to see this story again. Or I don't want to see this play again. Or it's just. You, God, you're never going to believe this. It's the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. What? Explain that to me. I know. It's too much. It's too much. I, it, it's, I get, I get, I'm sensitive to sensory overload. Okay. And it came to Pittsburgh, and we got tickets, and we left at intermission. <gasps> Don't tell anyone. But it was too much. I couldn't handle it. It was too loud. It was too noisy. Uh, that's the same thing. It, it, there, was, it, there was too much spectacle. I couldn't handle it. I got really overwhelmed and started to sweat, and I, I had to get away. Really? But isn't, yes. the, isn't, isn't that play about an autistic boy? Yes. So you would expect that there wouldn't be as much spectacle if someone wants to bring their Well, but it's it's from like inside the mind of this boy which is overcome with all sorts of stimuli. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Have you ever seen it? I have not. Oh, I I did so a monologue much. once from the show. Uh, well, it's no, nothing I against the writing. Beautiful play. Yeah, that's but... what I was saying. I was like, I, I remember when I read the play, it, I really enjoyed it. It was really nice to get to see, you know, this representation in the play uh, and, and everything. I didn't Yeah, my actually... feelings are more about the production mm -hmm. of it. Because I remember I grabbed the monologue and I read it and I loved it. But then I was like, it would be wrong of me to do the monologue because I don't have any, you know, experience to, you know, an out I mean, autism or anything. So I was like, I really love it, but it's not for me. So I just put it aside and haven't actually looked at the play in a couple of years. So, but it's weird. Uh, that's nice. Weird, but nice. <laughs> uh, 
So, I guess you already s- responded this, but what's an act? Who's an actor that you adore? Like, if you if they tell you, oh, this actor's in this play or this actor's in this movie, you're like, oh yeah, we need to see it. I I adore Frances McDormand. Mm. Yeah. Um, Do you see the new she... movie, The Nomaland? No, but I can't wait. <laughs> it's so good. She uh, well, she didn't won the Golden Globe, but the director won the Golden Globe for you know, but best dire- direction. And I I will just I mean I feel like she does work that's not for everyone. Like mm-hmm. same with like the billboards uh, that she won the Oscar for. It's not Three a place. Yeah. yeah, it's not. It's not a play. It's not a movie for everyone. Nomaland is not a movie for everyone. But if you really want to see a good acting, good storytelling, yeah, you should definitely uh, watch. Frances McDormand never shows never shows up to please anyone. Mm. You know, she works for the work. Mm-hmm. I love that. So we're gonna go. We're gonna switch the coin now. Um, an actor who's not particularly your favorite. No tricky questions. I know. An actor who is not particularly my favorite. Oh God. This is a tough one. Um. Okay. Okay, it's um, it's Emma Stone. Mm. Yeah, Explain it's actually a, it's actually a tie. It's a tie between Emma Stone and um. Why can't I think of her name? She's she's um married to the guy from SNL now. I well, and either way, I'll I'll stick with Emma Stone. So. Emma Stone, I feel like, shows up to be seen and heard and appreciated for all the hard work she's putting in and into more than just her acting, um, into other things as well, superficial things as well. Um, and I don't, I don't really, when I watch her, feel like she... She understands her circumstances, her care, you know, mm-hmm. her given circumstances, her, her her character within the play, within the story, and the story at large. Mm. I just sort of feel like she's well directed. Mm. Yeah, she knows how to take direction, and she knows how she she's a very good camera actor. Mm-hmm. She knows where to put her body mm-hmm. and her face. Um, but it's sort of like that, for me anyway, all the lights are on, but nobody's home. Mm. Very technical, very technical, but no real, no real. Missing the soul, the emotion. Painstaking yeah. life. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we should get her Meisner trainer probably lighting <laughs> up a little bit. Um, what's your dream role? Um, this is, this, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna say it. My dream role is playing a woman who is not in the script in service of a man. Mm. So not there to um, save the man or 
or be destroyed by the man. Um, and I don't, when I say the man, I mean a man. I don't mean like the man mm. at large. You know what I mean? I'm, I mean the the male, my male counterpart. Okay. I'd like to be in, I'd like, I'd like to be a woman in a story about a woman, you know, with other women. There can be men, of course, but they're not just the focus. They have been the focus for so long um, that it's really hard to find uh, good pieces you know, for women, by women, about women mm -hmm. hmm. that don't, that don't focus on just heartache. Mm -hmm. I like yeah. that. I like that. Uh, I was thinking, I was like, Macbeth. Anyone's listening. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, that would be, I, I, I can definitely see you play Lady Macbeth. Yeah. I, I'd love to play Beatrice again in Much Ado About Nothing. Hmm. Yeah. I did that in college and I would love to revisit it. And a last question. Uh, what's your mm -hmm. favorite metal strip movie? Oh my God. Um, Sophie's Choice. Mm. Sophie's Choice. I feel like that's her best movie. I really First enjoy Oh, so there's so much. You know, she is someone who makes the people around her important. Mm -hmm. And so is Kevin Klein mm. um, and Peter Scolari. The, and them in that film together was a masterclass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, I really love that movie. Should probably revisit it one time. Um, so, yes, yes, the listeners got to know you a little bit m more. So now let's get into some Meisners, shall we? Sure. Okay. Uh, Nancy, before we get into the whole technique aspect mm. and everything, I feel like. Every time we visit, or not visit, every time we study uh, a play or uh, a piece of uh, a painting or a piece of work, we always try to know who the author or the artist behind that, you know, art is, or who you know who he was or she. So, who was Meisner? Can you give us a little background on who was Meisner? Uh, Absolutely. Why yeah. is he so important in our American theater? And uh, yes, let's start with who Meis who was Meisner? Who was Meisner? Um, Meisner was the firstborn uh, of four kids to a pair of um, Jewish Hungarian immigrants um, in Brooklyn in 1905. Uh, he was raised in the Bronx. The family moved pretty soon after he was born from um, Greenpoint, Brooklyn, up to the Bronx. Um, and he had a very rough go of it. He, um, as a as a very lit young boy, um, had respiratory problems, a lot of health problems. Mm -hmm. And in an effort, um, you know, to help his health, 
the parents decided to take the family on a trip to the Catskills. Um, unfortunately, while there, his little brother drank unpasteurized milk, became ill for like two years, and then died of bovine tuberculosis. Um, but his parents, being very well-meaning, kind people, but you know, not too bright or emotionally um, intellectual, they blamed him for this death and treated him poorly his whole life. He spent his childhood and adolescence in isolation without too many friends because his parents were just hard on him. Um, and he found solace in playing the family piano, um, which eventually uh, got him into the Damrosch Institute of Music, which later became uh, the Juilliard School. Mm. Uh, but he was always interested in acting because he lived in his own fantasy world because he got treated like crap at home and he didn't have any real friends. And as early as being in first grade, he told his teacher that he wanted to be an actor. And so as soon as he graduated, a very prolific pianist from the Damrosch Institute, he pursued acting professionally. Um, when he found out that um, the Actors Guild um, the the uh, theater guild, the theater guild, was going to hire kids, um, and the theater guild was just this acting society in New York. It was unlike any other um, theater company, though, because their board of directors all sort of took on the responsibility of choosing plays and productions and mm -hmm. directors and management and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, and then he. So he got cast as like an extra in a show there, um, but the lead actors in this play, you know, really sort of changed the, the trajectory for him and he got really serious. Um, after he received a scholarship to study at the Theater Guild's School of Acting. And it was um, here that he, he described it as, you know, a mediocre program, but this is where he met uh, Harold Klerman and Lee Strasberg. Mm -hmm. um, and it was those two, along with uh, Cheryl Crawford, who put together 28 actors to form the group theater. Mm -hmm. um, and one of those actors was Meisner. And the group theater uh, was a real ensemble-based um, uh, theater company um, that drew their sources of the, the, the quality of acting they would do from Stanislavski over at the Moscow Art Theater in Russia. Um, and it was, it was Harold Klerman and Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg who had worked directly with um, Stanislavski and two of his star students who created the American Lab Theater um, that was Richard Boloslavsky and I'm never, never going to say it right. Maria, um, Maria Os, Ospinskaya, Ospinskaya, mm -hmm. something like that. <laughs> um, but they all, yeah, they all studied a very early version of Stanislavsky's method at the lab. Um, and, you know, it was Lee Strasberg who really, really focused on um, the effective memory part of Stanislavsky's method. Um, and it was maybe 
late in Stanislavski's life, now we're talking the 1930s, um, that Clermont and Adler went to Paris to go visit Stanislavski, who was pretty much on his deathbed. Um, and it was there that uh, they, that they brought that they brought back the information to America that the uh, effective memory was essentially the concept of, of the effective memory was getting in the way of an actor's access to the truth. It was sort of it was complicating that path. Um, and the effective memory is uh, uh, it's an exercise where the actor. Um, recollects a moment from their past or an event from their past so that they can use that to stimulate emotion to use on stage when they just don't have the, you know, real emotion there mm -hmm. um, accessible to them that night. Um, and this, the effect of memory was the cornerstone really of Strasberg's teachings. And so when the rest of them came back from Paris saying, this isn't really the way, you know, it's more about, it's really more about the given circumstances. Um, that's sort of caused a rift in, it definitely caused a rift in the group theater and um, Strasbourg resigned. And like a couple of years later, um, the whole group theater itself disbanded. But this is where Meisner starts to take, where his system starts to take shape because he really sides with Stella Adler in on the whole effective memory controversy um and he also credits the actor Michael Chekhov um who made him realize that you know truth um it, as in naturalism was was far from the whole truth and the whole truth um, of any given moment is is what Meisner felt was uh, the foundation of believable acting. Mm. Um, so he he you know he started on this search for accessing real truthful moments, living um, uh, truthful moments in imaginary circumstances. So before we get into before we get into the whole uh, Meissner technique and what it yes. is and whatnot, uh, so we talked about Strasberg, uh, Stella Adler, uh, Meissner, the yeah. group theater and everything. It feels like whenever you talk about Meissner, you need to talk about Strasberg. Yeah, you need to talk about them all whenever you talk about any of them. So can yeah. we get a little insight on well, Strasberg and Stella Adler and what they brought into the theater group as a whole? Because I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, rumors, because I wasn't there, uh, and many of us weren't there, uh, mm -hmm. that they, there was a lot of, I didn't say fighting, but they weren't completely in the same table when it comes to the most effective way of acting. But they all wanted the same thing, which was for their students and the whole theater group to make good work, believable work. So what drift them, what drift them apart? Was it just the effective memory? Or was there anything else besides, you know? Well, you know, 
Lee Strasberg really focused um, on the effect of memory that he he felt was the cornerstone that that it was the key to unlocking truth on stage. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, when you focus on only one thing, you get this singular tunnel vision that disallows you from experiencing everything else. And a denial of everything else can't be the truth. Mm -hmm. Right? So Stella Adler and Harold Klerman and Lee Strasberg were real acolytes of Stanislavski and you know, they believed that his system, known as the method, the American you know, method, exactly, was the way. Mm-hmm. And that consisted of um, using the effective memory, using um, the sense memory, uh, using private moments, um, essentially creating a, a toolkit of techniques from which to draw when you when you don't have the juice so to speak. And for Stella Adler and Meisner, this was a denial of the truth. That you can't you can't use something else to recreate something. That's not real. You have to act, you, you need to try to be so dropped in with your partner that you both are experiencing the same thing that is happening right now. So well, while they believed, and I believe that preparation is is key, you you must have it. You must know the world of your play. You must know your character. You know, you must have. I think Stella Adler's six questions answered. Mm-hmm. You know, who are you? Where do you come from? You know, all 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 those six questions. Um, I believe you do need to have as many questions answered as you can before you start to speak as your character, but. Preparation only gets you as far as your first step on stage. Because then once you're there, you're with someone else. Mm -hmm. And what you must do is absolutely nothing until behavior tells you what to do. Mm -hmm. And that can only happen in the moment. You can't prepare for that. So, you know, before we get into the whole juicy stuff of the Meissner technique, what was Meisner believed that was the not the perfect way but was the way of creating believable work I think that he believed that being an active listener mm-hmm. so that you can act on impulse is the most important thing and the only way to act on impulse is to trust your impulses mm-hmm. um, and not judge them. Um, this, I think he believed was, was the way to live truthfully under imaginary circumstances. And he did, was not a believer in, in, in the effective memory. So what was Meisner believed besides given circumstances? Um, that I think his belief, you know, was that um, your scene partner is the most important person on stage, not you. Mm-hmm. What, what they, how they are being with you 
and what what they what they are giving you the stimulus that they the uh, are giving you is what you need to react to that's the most important thing is the other so <laughs> I, I think that leaves like draws back to the quote that i used to open up this podcast this episode is like with a developed imagination there's no place you can't go so meisner was a true believer in using the imagination to your favor is that correct absolutely and in order to do that you have to have experience so you need to go out and do so meisner was a believer that in order to create true work you shouldn't use experiences from your past but in order to create them in an imaginary circumstance in a way that you believe them that they're well the imaginary circumstance the imaginary circumstance is the play that's like you know so to speak the 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 story the story the story exactly um and so in order to find the truth in the prepared speech that's been given to you by the writer, mm-hmm. um, you can't be thinking of, you can't be actively thinking about a past time in your life to help draw up emotion. What you actually have to be doing is be living in the moment you're in now with your scene partner and listening to them and what they are giving you so that you can react honestly to that, not to something else from your past. So in other words, staying in the moment, not going back in order to find something that you could give for the moment, but instead using the moment to create the moment. Exactly. Because if you're thinking about something from your past, you are denying this moment. Mm-hmm. You're not in it. And and that's just leaving your scene partner hanging out to dry with no stimulus for him to react to. Mm-hmm. So then Meissner created this whole technique that in conservatories all around the world they teach in order to you know um, have have it in your toolbox and when you need it and it's often known as the art of repetition is that correct well he he used um exercises in repetition yeah to to help um actors um get out of their own way of overthinking each moment and analyzing each moment and just being and reacting because if you <clears throat> if you just re- if you just repeat what it is you're hearing without pause and without judgment um it it frees you up from any you know preconceived notion you thought you had um which may even be valid for your character but it frees you up of that so that you can so that you can be honestly listening to and reacting to um, your scene partner in the moment. Hmm. So going now into the Meissner technique, uh, what's the first step of this technique? And what do you need in order to make this exercise the best you can do? So the repetition exercise consists of only two people because it's a it's a it's a call and response type thing so any anything more than two people it, it gets messy um, and the point is for person a to uh, be sitting across from person B um, and to look away to clear your mind of everything 
And then to just look at person B and say the first thing that you see, a, the first physical thing that you see, curls, blue, pen, right? Um, so you, you see that thing, you say it, and then person B, without pause or judgment, repeats it back. And then you do that a couple of times, back and forth five, six times, um, to see where it goes, if it goes anywhere. Because the purpose isn't really for anything to go anywhere, which can be frustrating for some people. Because the real goal is to get you to be comfortable being exactly where you are with nowhere else to go and nothing else to worry about but what's happening right in front of you. And that takes patience. And not and it's it's a hard, it can be a very difficult thing. You just think repeating blue and re back and forth five times should be simple enough. But to be able to do it really um, without judgment and it, as an immediate response uh, can be difficult for people because it you have to let go of control. Uh, for the people that are, are not familiar with theater and acting, when you say no judgment, what do you mean? Is that you're, are you judging the color of the shirt? Is that basically it? Or are you judging yourself? What are you, what are you trying yes, to say? With yes, judgment? all of it. So what you want to do is just see what you say instead of seeing something, deciding what you think about it, then judging that and thinking, should I have thought that? Or what would he think if I said this? All of that stuff is just letting time go by and, and dead space happen where action could be happening because you are fully engaged in just what you're seeing and saying. Mm. So when I say no judgment, I mean, if I were to look away and look at you and see curls and just say curls, instead of looking at you seeing curls and thinking, oh my God, those curls are adorable and saying curls, then you know how I feel about it, don't you? Mm -hmm. And I took time. I took, you, you saw me think about it right? Mm -hmm. And you wondered, and, and in all that time, stimulus happening between us could have, could have been taking place. And is someone guiding the, this exercise while we're doing it, or we just... Uh, yeah, yeah. Work? You know, at the beginning, in the beginning stages, I think it's important to have a guide there just to sort of help remind you um, to not think and just either say what you see or repeat what you say so that you can get into this habit of not having your mind analyze everything and just reacting just letting an instinct take over and speak on it mm. because it's it's always that first instinct that someone has as a reaction to something that is the most truthful mm -hmm. The moment they don't speak on that first instinct, it isn't automatically what came natural, naturally to them. It's something else. It's something that they've now colored because of how they think it will be perceived. Uh, so we did the repetition exercise. Uh, will that progress into something else or will just stay yeah, in, sure. in that repetition? Once we got the repetition down and uh, partner A and partner B 
are focused. They're not judging. They are listening. Mm-hmm. They are connected. And you feel like we have a, uh, as, as partners, we have a, a solid base. What's the next step? The next step is then uh, saying what you see with a point of view, also known as the provocative statement. Um, the word provocative um, has has not has more than just its literal meaning, and its literal meaning is just to provoke a response. Um, it gets muddied and it gets confused and people think that it's about um, provoking uh, 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 pecking, mm-hmm. pecking in terms of provoking, right? Um, but really we're, all we want is a response from <clears throat> what we have said that has our point of view on it. So it's important to keep it, to try to keep it positive, you know, and and so... An example of that would be curls and not curls, because uh, people, uh, when you have a negative connotation to it, people immediately feel judged, and, and their gut instinct, their defense mechanism, is to shut down. Mm-hmm. So I just think that it's helpful um, just to keep people open-minded and open-spirited um, to keep it positive. And what's the response of partner B? Um, is to repeat it, is to repeat what they hear um, with that point of view. And this is all in an, in an effort to show intention. What do you mean by that? Um, you know, so for example, um, if I said, if I noticed your, if I, if I moved on to just not just one word that is a straight observation, but now I'm saying what I see f- from you, not necessarily on you. Um, I might say, uh, I might say, you know, you're tired today. You know, and then you we you, we would repeat that back and forth a couple of times, and it might it it might get a response from you. You know, you're you're tired. You're tired today. You know, and that <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> and now we can see what people's point of view are, what their intention is, what they're trying to get across to the other person with what they're saying. <coughs> so if Pardon? I if I would have started repetition exercise right now and i would say blue your response to that would be blue immediately without without hesitation without without judging without anything blue exactly but the second step to that is pointing pointing something further out so (coughs) like you said i'm not pointing what you have on you but i'm pointing what's in you is that correct? Um, no, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It still has to be what you see. Okay. So if I can see that you're tired, then I can I can say you're tired today. Okay. So if right? I see, if so, if I see that you have a like 
your brows like you have a brows up do i say like yeah. your brows up but is it am i making am i insinuating something or am i just pointing out that what i see is that your brow is up well you you do make that judgment and you're thinking what could that mean so your brow is up you know uh you're thinking about me so uh, to me that if your brow is up uh, i might think that you know you're thinking about me you're questioning me you are not sure what to make of me you know that's maybe what i'm thinking you're thinking because your brow is up it's what i'm seeing and, from you i might not be right but and, it's what i'm getting from you so as a partner if you're saying uh i'm 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 going to do that on you i'm like you're judging me mhm mm what would your response to that be i'm judging you you're you know if if i don't think i am my response might be i'm judging you hmm. if i'm judging you so we have to we have to follow our instincts we have to be we have to be non-judgmental of ourselves and the other you know it might we might disagree we might have questions but we have to say what we see and we have to repeat what we say because that's how we will get out of our own ways of trying to control and analyze every every moment of it so we just making a recap we go from step one. we uh repeat we just say what we see yeah and then on the first step and then on the second step i take a little bit further so i make do i make an assumption to what you yeah. to what i see yeah you're saying you're yeah you're saying what you see in order to get a response mm -hmm. from me but in order to make in, in order to get a response for you i have to see what i see i cannot i cannot be right, you can't make it up so, uh, yeah i can't be like you're in a dress but i could be like you're in a blue sweatshirt Mm -hmm. So it is always, it has to be something objective. You cannot make a subjective statement. <coughs> uh, step one is step objective. Step one. Yes. Step two, you take that objective statement and you can add a, subject, a subjective statement to that reaction. Well, now what you're, what you're, step two is when you say what you see you're saying it to provoke a response okay that's right i'm provoking the other yeah. person in order to get a response is that correct right and then on right. step three i'm then we're adding then we're adding an activity okay so we're gonna hold that for a second yeah uh, i want to do a repetition exercise before we move into the activity with you is that okay okay so we can just um give a little sneak peek of how you would do it if you were in a classroom with a partner. Okay. So, uh, of course, we are living in times of pandemic. Uh, so, Nancy's not in the studio with me. We are chatting through Zoom. So, I can only see her head. I cannot see her full body. So, we'll see how that works. Because we <laughs> have less to work with. Right. Okay. Do you want to say what you see or repeat what you say? Uh, I'll repeat what I say. I'll repeat. I mean, I'll repeat what you hear. Yeah, I'll right. repeat what I hear. I'm sorry. I'll repeat okay, what great. I hear. 
Okay. Your eyes are brown. My eyes are brown. 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 Your hair is curly. My hair is curly. Your hair is curly. My hair is curly. Yeah, your eyes just went up when I said that. My eyes went up when you said that. Yeah, your eyes got big. My eyes got big. Your eyes got big. My eyes got big. Yeah, you're smiling now. I'm smiling. You're smiling. I'm smiling. You're smiling. I'm smiling. You're smiling. I'm smiling. You have a nice smile. I have a nice smile. You're not really smiling anymore now. I'm not really smiling anymore. No, you're not really smiling. I'm not really smiling anymore. No, you got defensive. I got defensive. You got defensive. I got defensive. You got defensive. I got defensive. Your voice got low. My voice got low. Your voice got low. My voice got low. So that sort of evolved mm -hmm. from the straight observation to the provocative statement. So, it, it, so that was a sneak peek of how you would start and how it mm -hmm. would progress. But you would do it in little chunks at a time until you. Can, oh yes, and absolutely can... exhaust it. Yes, <laughs> because it takes a very long time for the human brain to stop judging because mm -hmm. that's what we're supposed to do this is how we get through life mm -hmm. i judge you know i see that it's raining outside i judge that i i don't want to get wet and so i get an umbrella and i get out there you know but this is just going it's funny because you talk about judging and in my head and in most of us when we when we hear the word judge or you judging someone we always give it a negative uh connotation that a judgment right. is negative that you're, oh right. you're judging someone that's not cool when when necessarily we do it all the time and most of the time um, when we're judging someone it's often for the good than the bad so it's survival yeah it's a survival technique yeah so it's it's like you will always have an opinion on something whether mm -hmm. you think that's whether that opinion is wrong or good or bad whatever you, you think that opinion is But that opinion will always come with the judgment behind it, I think, in my opinion. Absolutely. So it's always nice to get <clears throat> out of that mentality that when you're judging something, it's for the negative side of it instead of actually you're judging something because, oh, I like that. That is a judgment because I'm judging what you did and I like what you did. So This is how we have to get through life. Yeah, so I think uh, it it's always especially when working with Meissner and starting with Meissner, I think that was one of my breaking points when I understood that when I'm making, uh, especially in that second part, when you're making, uh, when you're poking someone, when you have that, you know, that provocative statement yeah, and you're poking someone in order to get a reaction, you always are like, oh, I don't want to say anything wrong. I don't want to say anything this, that. You're judging me. You said that in a judging way. No. Yes, but no. You know, you yeah, I judge you, but it's yeah, not for the yes, wrong but yes. reason. It's yes, but yes. And the reason doesn't matter to anyone but you. Mm -hmm. Right? That's it's true. like boundaries. Yeah. Your boundaries are perfect exactly where they are. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's up to the other person working with you to be able to work within the parameters of your boundaries. Yeah. Or they're, or they're, not, good, they're not doing a good enough yeah. job. So that's always a nice reminder. To when you're working with uh, Meissner, especially when you, that in this next part, you're going to get very personal. So it's always nice uh -oh. to, um, you know, have that in mind. 
So, Nancy, going back to the Meissner technique, um, mm -hmm. we already talked about repetition. We did our provocative statement. What are we going to add now to this exercise? Um, now we add uh, a physically difficult activity. Um, and this is also the goal of, for this is also to, you know, release ourselves of this, the, the tunnel vision of connection. Because um, when we can focus on something <clears throat> that is difficult, one, um, obtainable, two, it's got to be something that you're able to accomplish. And three is meaningful, is, is, is vitally important to you. Um, you are able to just uh, listen to your scene partner and react to them without any of the agenda that you have already put on it, any of your your prep your other preparation. Like I, I I decided that in this moment I'm feeling this, and in that moment my character is is feeling this. But you really can't know that until you're on stage with your scene partner. Until you get to that moment. Exactly. So the so the concept of the activity is partner A chooses a, a physically difficult activity. At first, um, it can be something uh, meaningless like a bar trick. You know, like you're building a house of cards or you're um, spinning a, a basketball on um, a pencil or your finger or something like that um, to help, you know, split the focus so that you can respond um, from your instincts instead of from what you have prescribed as the way your character should respond. And, and we, we build in the repetition okay. uh, with this exercise. So <clears throat> I'm spinning the basketball on my, my finger and I'm, I'm concentrating only on this. And, and I'm trying to, and I'm trying to accomplish it. It's difficult, um, and I might, I might fail a bunch of times, but I just have to keep doing it. And the, in the meantime, partner B is making observations about what's happening, and these are not just your straight objective observations. This is really what you see happening. You know, you're you're working hard at that. You're failing. You know, this is important to you. That, that, that made you frustrated, all of those, those things that you see to provoke a response from the person doing the activity. And why Meisner thinks it's important, um, uh, this kind of exercise, or why he thought it was important um, to have this kind of exercise where you've got this, um, this independent activity um, is because he really believed that that acting isn't talking. It's living off of the other person. Okay? It's, it's responding truthfully to whatever you're being given from the other. That there is meaning and, and that there is meaning in behavior. Hmm. You know, so if I'm... If, if my activity in the play, the playwright says... Diego walks in on Nancy, who is sweeping the floor. There's meaning in behavior. So I, as the actor, could either choose to just sweep the floor or I could choose to murder the floor with the broom. 
you know, have meaning behind what I'm behind what I'm doing. And he also, Meisner also believed that you don't do anything, you can't do anything until a behavior makes you do it. So you can't speak until this behavior makes you, the behavior you're getting, the stimulus you're getting and, and what, what you're receiving and trying to give back propels you to speak. Hmm. Otherwise, there's no reason. So there was a lot of information in that. I know. <laughs> so we are going to try to break it down as best as we can. So okay. uh, partner A chooses an activity. That activity yeah. has to be hard. Does it Very have to difficult. Be, does it have yep. to? Can it? Is it impossible? Or does it have to be doable? No, it has to be doable. It has to be doable. Two. So I yes. cannot, you know, I cannot go in there and be like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, do. Uh, I'm gonna levitate. You know, I cannot do that. Exactly. That's not an exercise. Exactly. I cannot. That's not. Yeah, that's it has not to be something you, know, you can do. But I can go in the room and be like, oh, I'm gonna juggle five balls. I only know how to do three. But I know if I work it up, I can do five. So that's a, that's an activity I can bring into the studio or yep. you know into the rehearsal room to do. Yep. So as partner A, my yes. whole my whole thing in this exercise is to focus on the activity. Is that yes. correct? I don't have yes. anything, any given circumstances yet. I don't have anything to worry about. Any psychological. Well, the given stuff. circumstances. The given circumstances are the importance of the activity to you. So as, as, as partner A, I'm just trying to make this activity, whatever it is that I chose to do. That's my main objective. It's, right a now. it's something that is difficult. So let's say it, you did choose the juggling. Mm -hmm. That's a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. But you know you can eventually accomplish it because you know how to juggle. Mm -hmm. You know how to juggle three balls. But mm -hmm. now you're doing five balls. <clears throat> so it's physically difficult. You can... You can do it. You can accomplish it, but it also has to, you have to put a meaning behind it. Okay. It has to be vitally important that you do this activity. Do you, do you need to have that already established or do you just need to know that it's important? I, I think you need to, you definitely need to have that established because that's part of, of, of your given circumstances. Okay. So let's say. I always try to give examples because I feel it, it helps people understand, especially Meisner, since it's such very it's a very tacky technique. So let's say I chose to do five balls, but okay. I can only I can only do three, but I need uh -huh. to learn to do them five because it's uh, I'm gonna juggle at my grandma's ninety seventh birthday, and she's on her deathbed, and her dying wish was to see me juggle five oh, balls. God. Yes. Is that something I can work with? Or yes, do I, I think tone, so. Or, or do I need to tone it down a little bit? No, I think I think that I think that that works. That works. Yeah. So now as partner A, all I have to focus is on getting the five balls. I think that it should actually. I, I, that's a it's that's a meaningful thing. But if you can make it more urgent, I think it would be better. Can you give so an example? It, yes. Um, the kidnappers actually have your grandmother in the other room. And if you don't accomplish this task, they're going to kill her. 
Jesus, Nancy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I went, it, I went live, but you, you threw that in there. Right. I mean, this your grandmother's ninety fifth <laughs> birthday. It's like you're gonna survive. It'll. It might break her heart. It might break your heart. But you're gonna survive. Okay. This is vital, vitally important. Now this is, this is different. And all that does is raise with. the yes. stakes. You do that so you can raise the stakes. So you. Uh, so already I'm working with this activity, but I'm not just throwing balls. I'm I'm throwing them balls because I need to yeah. catch them balls. Yep. So that's partner A. What is partner B's uh, importance in this exercise or, or activity? So my job is to say – my job is to make these observations. Okay. Okay. And to – so that <clears> – <throat> so that I can provoke a response from you okay. while you are engaged in this vitally important activity. Okay. So. And, and the purpose of this is to be able to find behavior in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And like when I said, Emma Stone is my least favorite actor because it seemed like all of the lights were on, technically things were working, but there wasn't, there's not really behavior in, in, in her performances. She's hitting the marks. She looks great. She, you know, <clears throat> and uh, her inflections rise when they're supposed to. But I don't really believe that anything is ever vitally important to her. Okay. And that's where behavior comes in. And this is just an exercise to help, to help the actor access that. Okay. So... Like you said, we are focusing now on behavior. Yeah. Because, because Meisner believed that out of difficulty, emotion will come. Okay. Because you can't really get the deep, the deep pain and hurt and, 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 and lifelong disappointment from not juggling at the 95th birthday party. But you could get it from the kidnappers murdering her in the room next to you. Okay. That's real emotion. Okay. Strong. I should say strong. That's strong emotion. So the whole the whole well, the whole the point of this exercise is focusing on behavior in order to get meaningful emotion and reaction through your behavior or in order to make your behavior what's the what's the deal there yeah you do the exercise because you're trying to to train yourself to to follow the truth okay okay instead of following what you have deemed um the character should do it keeps you in the moment and it, it keeps the emotion um, believable and, and, and truthful, so to speak, because, you know, only out, out of a difficult situation can real um, frenetic energy uh, appear. Hmm. So, uh, Nancy, after yeah. we do this activity exercise, is that the end of the Meissner technique? Or is there more to it? No, there's 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 much more there's much more to it. There's um, 
and there are other aspects too. Like there's um, there's not just knocking at the door. Oh, I want. I, that's what I was gonna. Uh, that's what I want to get there. I want to yeah. talk about the door exercise. Yeah. So, um, um, is that adding to the activity exercise? Is that correct? Yes. Uh, yes, yes, that can, yes, that can be a step of it, but the, but even just the first step is you being on one side of the door Mm -hmm. in a room, you know, that you have, that you have set up, you know, so that, you know, you know, essentially a a table, chairs, a, a couch or, you know, whatever, a bed, um, some sort of a room where you can be in there doing something. And I, on the other side of the door, um, can disrupt what you're working, try to disrupt what you're working on in order to shake up some real emotion. So I knock on the door in three different ways. Mm-hmm. And your prep, the point of this is that your preparation only gets you so far as to when your, uh, your scene partner finally enters and now you have to deal with what is in front of you rather than what you prepared to be in front of you. Hmm. So I knock on the door, um, you know, gently or normally, whatever. I come in and I start observing while you're doing your activity and we have this nice, easy repetition, right? But then we do it again and I practically, I break down, I almost break down the door pounding on it. After I have allowed you to um, get going in your activity, so that you are in deep in your in your space of the importance of the your activity, and I just try to jar it open with my knock on the door, my entrance to the room, and my observations. Hmm. Because, and we're 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 this is all rehearsal. This is all practice. These are all games, so to speak. Um, in order to help you follow the truth of the moment and access real emotion because real uh, raw emotion doesn't come from anything easy or pretty or nice. And it's all imaginary. Like we cannot go into the room and work with something that has already happened to you. 100%. First, like first you're not going to get the natural response but second it's not healthy for you as an actor because right. i mean this is theater you're not in a you know working through your problems as though <laughs> as though many of us do work through our problems through the uh-huh. craft, but and it, not, it happens not, yeah but it's not and you can't you know you don't you don't want to push it away mm-hmm. you know you'll hear all the time use it mm-hmm. use what you're going through um and what i think that means is just don't deny it. Let it let it ride. Let it take. Let it run its course. Mm-hmm. You know, as as you concentrate on your scene partner and what they're giving you, mm-hmm. you're letting your body do whatever it's going to do because old feelings of something are coming up. You just don't you just don't deny any of that because that's denying a truthful moment. And I have to say, it is. Uh... <laughs> It is nice to, and you learn a lot from doing it, but it's even more beautiful when you're in the room and others are working and you're just watching 
that natural emotion comes up. Uh, whenever I talk about Meisner and my experience with Meisner, I always uh, narrate this experience that was in the room. I always say the miracle, not the saint, you know, because you can talk about experiences, but you don't have to tell names. There was this this person. Uh, one of he his activity was he had to write a song, and he brought in his guitar, mm-hmm. and his idea he's in he's uh you know his activity was like I'm gonna write a song. I have this time limit, and I need to write this song. And I don't know if you remember this, but like you did earlier, you. Put the stakes a little bit higher. So you told this person that his activity, his given circumstances was he needed to write this song, get the chords right. That was that was his trouble. He wasn't getting the chords right. He couldn't get the, the chords in his guitar like they were supposed to. And you told him that he needed to get the chords right. He only had 20 minutes because they were on his way to bury his mom and his mom mom's dying wish was that you play this specific song in her funeral i'm getting goosebumps just telling about it because that moment i remember it was the door exercise and the other person partner b came through the door and you know she the person was observing and he you know it's the it got a little bit not heated but it got a little bit intense because you know you start provoking and you start making she had her own circumstances yes th- th- mm-hmm. yeah she came in with, that's a, that was one of the things we didn't talk about you, the person came comes with their own set of given circumstances and she had her own uh given circumstances and everything and she came in and she started poking and i kid you not i don't know if you remember this but i kid you not there wasn't a dry eye <laughs> in the room because the emotion was just so pure and so raw. And even every, even though everything was imaginary, like, I mean, her mom was, like, the mom was perfectly fine and we weren't going anywhere, it just felt so real. The circumstances were imaginary, but he was living truthfully within them. Yes. Because the stakes were high. Yes. And, it was and just, his activity was difficult. Yes, and it was just, I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, they are they're just games. It, it's just yeah. the whole the whole the whole point is for you to have a meaningful, truthful reaction to whatever you are doing. Yeah, but those reactions are just heartbreaking and beautiful at times, you know, because you can have something heartbreaking but still beautiful. And I thought, and I, and and I think that was one of the highlights. Of my yeah, I mean, you know it when you see it. Yeah. You know truth when you see it, yeah. and you know, you know pretend when you see it. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I just thought that moment was very beautiful. So, Nancy, we've broken down a little bit about the Nan- the, the Nancy technique, the Meissner technique. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I have a couple questions that I've written down. So we can talk more about this this technique in a second. Nancy, do you think the Meissner technique is something that each actor should have on their back pocket? I think that the exercises that Meissner puts forward 
are incredibly useful for an actor trying to form their own technique. Can you explain? Yes. Um, no, no one actor can adopt another actor's technique. It is their own. Um, Meisner, just like his contemporaries, just like Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg and Harold Klerman and uh, Stanislavski, they all, they all had systems of belief and how to get to believable acting, how to mm -hmm. reach the truth within acting. Um, and there are valid um, points and there are invalid points for me in all of them. And so an actor, I think, needs to be a human sieve or colander um, so that you, you learn everyone's school of thought and you take what speaks to you, what you feel like you can draw truth with. Um, and that becomes your own personal technique. So you basically just use what works for you. I do. I, I um, yeah. I, I use, um, <clears throat> I use the uh, the difficult activity. I, I um, do repetition. So you know, if there's someone who has done it before in uh, a rehearsal process, you know, and if I'm trying to get out of my own head and. Uh, stop analyzing and live in the moment. I'll be like, has anybody ever done Meisner? Would anybody be willing to do a little repetition here? You know, I do that. I um, do private moments at, at home. Um, that's, and I, and I always answer Stella Adler's six questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, now I, I'm jumping between questions that I have and questions that our listeners asked on our social medias. So, okay. Uh, this person asks, do you think it's safe to introduce this technique to high schoolers? I think with the right guide and the right high schoolers, yes. But I feel that way for, for you know, all real acting training. You have to you have to be a person in a specific place in your life where you are responsible enough with your own emotions and those of other people, um, <clears throat> and you you have to have a certain maturity to handle this kind of work because it's not just memorizing lines and moving from place to place and wearing fun costumes. It's difficult, um, emotional work that can, that can hurt you if you let it. So if you were hired by this high school, this performing arts school to teach Meisner, yeah. but you went into the room and you found out that there is not the sense of, like you said, emotional maturity 
Uh, I feel trapped. I'm teaching. I, I have to teach Meisner. And <laughs> to yes, high schoolers. You, you, little, you were hired to teach Meisner. It's a Meisner oh, class. Oh, God. Would you teach it like you would teach any other Meisner class? Would you... I don't think that I would. No, I don't think that I would. Um, you know, depend. It, it really all depends, but I might feel like I need to skip the provocative statement. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the 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 concept of the pinch and the ouch. Some, you know, there there are there are things that take in Meisner a, mo- a real emotional maturity. Mm-hmm. I totally. So agree. I wonder. I, I wonder, yeah. So this question comes from another of our listeners. Uh, this person asks, can you talk about any specific show that you did that you used this technique with your scene partner? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did a production of The Rainmaker. Um where my character uh, is like an old spinster at like 22 years old, you know, living in the, the um, farm belt of America in like the 30s or, 30s or 40s. <clears throat> and um, my scene partner playing the rainmaker is someone who had uh worked with worked on Meisner done Meisner work before and there was um there was this section of text where it was written <clears throat> in a in repetition mm-hmm. and you know like as an old joke we you know we got all Meisnery about it we were being all sarcastic you know uh, about it but then it it just sort of spilled into a full-blown repetition. And, uh, you know, we, we had studied it. Uh, we had studied the technique quite a bit. So we, we really were able to, to go with it and, and uh, be quick about it, and, you know, so as not to judge it and really just, you know, go off instinct and, and have it have the repetition change organically um, and it really did freshen up the scene uh, for us, which was like the, t- the two of us, uh, extreme down center in this like really romantic moment in the, in the barn um, where I- I'm having this woe is me and he's having your, this, you know, you're a pretty girl moment and it was getting really dry. Um, and so what started off as joking about Meisner e- evolved into a real repetition exercise. Um, and because of it, we, we made new discoveries for that real small moment um, that turned out to be um, a, a really beautiful, truthful moment for us um, throughout the run. I have another question from mm-hmm. one of our listeners. And this person asks, what advice would you give someone that is constantly struggling with the idea of being vulnerable while doing Meisner? 
um, to move faster. Uh, when doing this activity, um, repeat immediately. Look away, or if you're the one doing the, the observing, um, look away, sing a, sing a line of a song or count to 10 in, in, in another language that you know, something that can just completely clear the way so that you can look at that, this person that you have been looking at the whole time and actually see something new. Um, and the faster, the faster you do it, the, the, uh, the less in your head about your vulnerability you will be, which will naturally open you up and you will just be vulnerable. Hmm. So speed, I would say. I was actually very excited when I got this question. Oh and God. Because <laughs> it's something I feel that it happened in my class, my recent class is what technique or what would you use? No, I'm going to rephrase that because I'm reading the question again. I'm going to rephrase that. What would you do if you're doing a Meisner exercise and you don't feel safe? Are you allowed to stop the exercise and then jump back into it? Or should you just continue and see what you explore? What you, what you, yeah, what you explore? Okay. Oof. In in my opinion, you can always stop because exploring, uh, finding truthful moments and um, high emotional states in acting shouldn't cause you pain. And so, if this is if this is it, it, it really. It really has to be up to you to, and uh, oddly enough, I'm going to say the word, judge it. You know, how far can I push this before I hit my breaking point? Will I, the question you really need to ask yourself is, will I survive this? Will I be okay? It might push my, my, m might push me to a point where I've never been this vulnerable before, or I'm feeling like, I'm not sure what is going to happen, but if I feel like when it's over, I'll still be myself and I'll still be okay, then I would absolutely push forward because you'll make a breakthrough. You just will. If you feel like this could break you, then you have to, you have to know yourself well enough to hit pause on that. And um, I believe in safety for all and respecting boundaries for all which is going to bring a, it it's about to bring me to button should i should we just talk about it yes please okay so you know in these in life <laughs> no matter where you are and what you're doing we're talking specifically about acting um <clears throat> i think knowing one's boundaries and adhering to them are uh, of paramount importance. And everyone's boundaries, yours and mine, need not be adjusted for anyone else. Diego's boundaries, whatever they may be, physical, emotional, or both, 
are perfect exactly where they are. And this is a belief I have from <clears throat> doing a workshop with Theater Intimacy, uh, the company of Theater Intimacy Education. Um, th they are a group of, of people who um, are basically teach people how to be intimacy coordinators. That's you know the per the the commercial purpose of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I I got great personal um, emotional uh, purpose from it. Um, so it it teaches us that everyone's boundaries are perfect exactly where they are. Um, and if I cannot work within Diego's boundaries, then that is a limitation on me, not on you. And so if I feel that my boundaries are being violated, I should stop that immediately, be able to address it immediately, and then jump immediately back in to a safe spot where everyone is um, abiding by everyone else's boundaries. Make sense? It does to me. I, I just wanted to say that I love that you explained what actually not feeling safe in an exercise is. Because I feel a lot of actors, including, well, not anymore, but when I started acting, I mistakenly, not it wasn't your fault, thought that me being vulnerable was equal to not me being safe. Right. And when I discovered that, it I made a breakthrough in my acting. Because... Your best work happens when you're actually vulnerable. And you may feel uncomfortable. You may feel like, oh, my God, I'm not used to feeling like this. What's going on? Keep going. Because that's yes. when you're actually going to make the breakthroughs and find great stuff. Yep. It's difficult. And through difficulty, em true emotion comes. But being... Like being difficult doesn't mean it's not safe. You right. being vulnerable does not equal you're not safe. So I love that you explained it. It's if you like stop and be like, oh, is this going to break me? Am I going to have emotional damage after this exercise? If I continue, then by all means, stop. Call button. Take yeah, a button's like a safe word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just call button, take a breath, get yourself back together, or if you need to stop and stop, that's fine. But right. if you're... Sometimes you might yeah, just need a minute, just a like, second. Okay, yeah. But I think breaking through you being vulnerable is key if you want to be a successful actor. It is. Pushing through your own feeling of personal discomfort to access that emotional truth I think is important. For an actor yes i totally agree so that brings us to our last question from our listeners and this person says that when she she's always had this problem when talking about meisner because 
she explains that she didn't have a safe environment when doing Meisner. How, what would you recommend for a professor or an ensemble to build trust and safety within the work? And I feel that's key. As a class, that's you're key. having issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th this person just said that when she had Meissner, she didn't have a safety environment in within the class. Uh -huh. So what would you recommend to other professors or, or other students that are going through the same thing to build On up the ensemble and create a safety environment? It, it, to do exactly that, uh, um, to have like a, a real um, period, uh, opening period of ensemble building, of like playing trust games, you know, getting getting to know one another. Um, like we, I, I was with you guys that we built a human circular couch, didn't we? With yes. like, each other's it body. Was, it was in a warm up. We did, we built a, a circular, um, yes, it was like a table, a human table. Uh, right, it was like a human yeah. table. That sounds so much better than the words <laughs> I was thinking of in my head. Um, and so, you know, things like that. Um, uh, trust, trust falls. Um, I like private moments in terms of ensemble building because when you do the exercise of a private moment, you are choosing to do something that you normally wouldn't do in front of anyone, but you're doing it in front of an audience. And it is to make it, it the, the goal is to make you feel comfortable um, uh, acting alone on stage, even though you're in front of an audience full of people and there's the lighting guy and the people in the wings, you know what I mean? But I think, um, I think incorporating uh, the concept of the activity of the private moment, uh, doing something very private in public um, is a great way to build trust. Can you expand on that, on the private moment, and give some examples on how someone can do that? Yes. So, um, so the, 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 the goal is to um, build up your courage in, within your open vulnerability so that you can um, believably behave like you're alone on stage if your character is there alone having a private moment. Um, while in front of an audience full of people. You need to learn how to shut them out and just be focused on your private moment. Um, an example of where the stakes are not high enough is practicing cradling um, your lacrosse ball in your lacrosse stick, and you're doing that alone because you're embarrassed that you're over 20 and you've been playing this game for a couple of years and that's that skill isn't super developed for you. That's the the stakes there are not nearly as high. Are, are not are not nearly high, high enough um, to help you um, find the um, the uh, emotional truth of doing this 
private thing in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of something where the stakes are high enough, a real true, something that you, you would never do in front of anybody else. Something that would make you too uncomfortable to do in front of someone else um, would be um, putting like vitamin E cream on the scars from your mastectomy. You know, you had cancer surgery. Um, we re- they re- they removed a breast, or you have a scar from there. Like I had breast reduction surgery when I was 19 years old. That's a true fact. And in my private moment at school, I um, sat against the mirror and took off my shirt and put the vitamin E cream on my scars, um, like I was supposed to do twice a day. Mm-hmm. Those are some seriously high stakes because I took my shirt off. Um, But there was, and I'm not suggesting anybody get naked. um, But what I am suggesting is finding that thing that, and I I didn't really have anything else in my life that was so private, I wouldn't do in front of anyone else. But what it did was it allowed me to stay super focused on my activity and my circumstances so that it really seemed like I was alone and unaffected by anyone else around. And the fact that I did that in front of a small group of people, the the other kids in my program, um, bonded us bonded us in, in, a, in a way um, that couldn't have happened um, with something with some real low stakes games. I like that. I, I haven't thought about that in a while. And yes, I totally agree. Totally agree. And I feel like ensemble strength and safety is key to have a proper a proper Meisner class because it's vital because yeah. it's not you cannot do it if you don't trust your partner exactly and the the partner if if the partner is the most important person in the room the person that you are supposed to be putting all of your focus on and not and you're not supposed to do anything until the their behavior compels you to do it You've got to be able to trust this person you're working mm-hmm. with. I totally agree. And know that they have your back. Yeah. Well, Nancy, this has been a wonderful conversation. For me as well. It's been so nice to get back into Meisner. And especially in times like this, it's always nice to go back to the roots and see what else we can find there. I, I hope agree. this was helpful to anyone. Uh, yeah. Do you have anything else to add before we wrap up? No, but I mean, other than, you know, bringing back all of this, you know, this talk of the, you know, the importance of, of behavior and, um, you know, real, uh, emotion coming out of difficult circumstances, um, has has just really sparked my desire uh you know to get back into a rehearsal room 
Yes. Um, that's, that has been the problem with every episode. It, it always feels I, I like bet, I bet. it always feels like I have <laughs> that burning desire to yeah. take my mask off and just go one in one and have that oh. energy and that vibe that we create in yep. the studio. I always feel like the most amazing stuff happened in the rehearsal studio, not in the performance, not in you know in tech or anything. It's just that studio yeah that that's where the discovery yes. happens absolutely yes and i feel like that's all i miss just mm-hmm. getting my butt in a studio with my and the production is the execution of that yeah yeah but it's it's just i i feel like that that's why i always like i i love acting because i love the process i'm a I'm, I'm, i'm a person that trusts the process and and and, and not it's not always focused in results I truly, truly enjoy the process, and I yeah, feel being like result oriented. Being result oriented is the death of an actor. I know, because you, you're you are never gonna be satisfied. You feel like there's always room for growth, and I feel like that's why If you're ever reaching, ever reaching for that perfect performance, that perfect whatever, or that goal that you think that you need to reach. You're denying the truth of the moment at hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and if you if you ever feel like you had a perfect performance, you should just quit. Just <laughs> yes. just literally just be like, I'm done as an actor, because just you made it. You made it. I feel like you made it. You found that perfect performance. Every everything that every actor wish, but I we just I feel like that's part of it. Just knowing that you will never have that perfect performance it's just i feel it keeps you working and yeah well and that well that you should be striving to always be making discoveries and having new experiences yeah and and, and and it's just there's something beautiful of an imperfect performance it's just why, why yeah why if do, it's the truth it's perfect yeah why why do i want to go to a theater and you know see something perfect just it doesn't No, we want to see something difficult we want to see struggle we want to see something <laughs> real and yeah. life is not perfect so why no. would i go see something perfect you know so and i think that's what meisner tells us in his exercises that life is not perfect but there is beauty in true and real performance yeah there's there's truth in it so thank Find you it. nancy <laughs> Thank, thank you, you for being here tonight. Uh, thank you to everyone that keeps listening to this podcast. Uh, I'm truly, truly thankful. We'll see you next week on episode five of our 14-episode podcast. Thank you and have a good night. Thanks for having me.